Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by Paytm, an app that believes that you are paying too much in bank fees and other types of transaction fees and has created the best way to pay your bills all in one place. They are so sure that you will think so that they're going to give you $10. Pay a $200 bill, get $10 back. When you download the Paytm Canada app and use the promo code CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by Pulp Art Party. This is interesting. On January 20th in Little Italy in Toronto at the Super Wonder Gallery, the Pulp Art Party. You should check this out. Go to pulpartparty.ca to see what this is all about. January 20th, doors open at 7 p.m. Tickets and information about this party at pulpartparty.ca. We have spies, spies who spy on us, spies who spy on the rest of the world, spies who spy on us in real life, and spies who spy using computers. And what these spies, these spies from CSIS and from CSEC, CSEC are the computer spies, they actually rebranded recently. They're now called the CSE or the establishment. 
if you can believe that, what these two spy agencies are allowed to do as soon as a new bill becomes law will then be limited only by their imagination. That's according to an alarming new report from the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab. Can you believe that? That is a quote. Our spy agency's powers will be limited only by their imagination. I don't know about you, but uh, I have a pretty wild imagination. I'm not saying that I could write an episode of Black Mirror, you know, like unless they wanted me to do that. But I've got a pretty good imagination, I think, for techno dystopian futures. Like I can imagine our spy agencies scraping face pics of every Canadian citizen from our social media profiles and using those pictures to build a complete person-by-person national facial recognition database that could be cross-referenced against security camera footage to create an all-seeing constant surveillance tool. I can imagine our spy agencies disrupting journalism, spying on reporters in order to know what we know, or in order to know who's leaking information to us, or impersonating journalists and reporters in order to get their own sources to tell them things releasing their own fake news reports to muddy the waters for whatever purpose, making it hard or impossible for both sources and readers to trust journalists, basically to the point where journalism just stops working. And I can imagine, and this would be the season finale, I can imagine CSE, again, the digital spy agency, the establishment, I can imagine them going from a signals intelligence outfit that just spied on communications, that's how they began, gradually evolving into an active, offensive military unit that has the technological and legal ability to launch cyber attacks, to shut down power grids, to use technology to even cause bodily harm or death. I can imagine all of that. And so can the researchers at the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab. And this is actually in their recently released report. The Citizen Lab report warns us that if the new spy law, Bill C-59, goes through, there is actually a loophole in it that, quote, would allow the establishment to cause death or bodily harm and to interfere with the course of justice or democracy. Okay. Lex Gill is a research fellow at the University of Toronto Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs. She's also a former Google Policy Fellow for the Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic. And she is a former researcher at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. She is one of those researchers warning us about this bill, and she joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Daniel Lutz, William Maloche, Connie O'Connor, Maxwell Harley, Chris Agaston, Jesse Robertson, Sally Ranadive, and Mark Hill. My name is Mark Hill. I'm a trust officer from Hamilton, Ontario, and I listen to Canada Land because occasionally you get stuck inside uh, your own uh, opinion bubble and Canada Land finds ways to challenge my worldview and occasionally make me feel uncomfortable. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day to day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help and they do it through research. 
The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by Paytm. Paytm is a very useful way of paying people companies, paying your bills, paying your rent, paying your property tax, paying your mortgage. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about all the different ways that you pay for different things? It's some things you can pay online, some you got to mail, some you got to go in person, some you pay at the bank. It's needlessly difficult. And there's actually fees attached to a lot of the different ways that we pay things. Paytm has made it super stupid simple to pay all of your bills at once. They do a lot of other things as well that I'll be telling you about in future spots. You know, have you ever thought about why you only get cash back on credit card purchases? What if you get cash back on all your bill payments and everything else that you spend money on, which actually is a lot more money than your credit card bills probably are, I hope. You can find out about that kind of stuff when you download Paytm's app. I'll be telling you about it in the future. For now... They are so convinced that you are going to use this as your bill payment solution from this point going forward that they're just going to give you $10 to try it out. Download Paytm onto your iPhone or Android device through their app stores, and you will get $10 maximum off of your first bill payment. Pay a $200 bill, get $10 back, use the promo code, not the referral code, use the promo code CanadaLand on Paytm. Finally, this episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. We are thinking about taxes now. It is that time of year. It is coming. And if you are a freelancer or a small business owner, you are glad if you are a user of FreshBooks because it means that everything you have done in the past year, all of the money that has come in, all of the HST you've collected, all of your expenses, everything you need to keep track of and turn into a tax return or pass off to your accountant, all of that is available to you with a click of a button if you use FreshBooks. No more rummaging through shoeboxes and stuff like that. This is when you feel really smart for using FreshBooks. If you're not using FreshBooks yet, this is a good time to start using it. Check it out. It will save you a ton of time. When you send an invoice using FreshBooks, it's not just very easy to make that invoice and to include all of your expenses and pictures of your receipts. It's actually an invoice that gets you paid quicker. And I don't know why. That's a complicated psychological phenomenon that people pay you quicker when you use a FreshBooks invoice. They do. Maybe it's because 
you can see when the recipient opens the invoice and they know you can see, and then you can't say, oh, I never got your invoice or I haven't had a chance. No, they know. So we get paid quicker. Also, this might be the reason you can just pay the person immediately using a credit card or other payment solutions using FreshBooks. The fact of the matter is it gets you paid quicker. What more do you need to know? Try it out for free for 30 days. No credit card required. It is very easy to get going on FreshBooks. When you do become a FreshBooks customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you. Go to freshbooks.com slash Canada Land. Hi, Lex. Hey, Jesse. Lex, can we start with this very alarming warning in your report uh, about this loophole, the loophole that, quote, would allow the establishment to cause death or bodily harm and to interfere with the course of justice or democracy? Uh, that is terrifying. What, what the hell kind of a loophole is that? Right. Sounds like James Bond or something. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we'd like to assume that's maybe an error in drafting or an oversight or people simply thought it was so implausible that they didn't foresee the need to add it. But indeed, there is that loophole. I get your point that because it allows them this broad language of like they're allowed under certain circumstances to break into some computer in some foreign country and change information, that includes potentially anything. So I, I get your point. You don't want us to kind of like pick these things. The big one, though, Lex, that I think a lot of people are focusing on in the small corners where we are talking about this is that there's a lot of talk that this would allow our spy agencies to launch cyber warfare on other countries. Historically, the CSE's mandate has been foreign intelligence, cybersecurity, and assistance to other law enforcement bodies like the RCMP, right? So Bill C-59 changes the CSE's mandate to include both active and defensive cyber operations, which in plain language is, is state-sponsored hacking. So as you've said, those powers include the ability to like degrade and disrupt and influence and interfere with capabilities, um, like leaking documents or mass dissemination of false information or denial of service. And there are certain restraints on those activities. You know, they have to be approved by the Minister of National Defense and the Minister of Foreign Affairs. They're not supposed to cause death or bodily harm. They're not supposed to interfere with the course of justice or democracy. And they can't be, quote, directed at Canadians or persons in Canada or parts of the infrastructure that's in Canada. So again, I would say there are international human rights concerns with this. And there are also Canadian charter rights concerns with this, because as we know, the internet is not sort of neatly bound to national borders. And as a result of that, activities that we take on foreign infrastructure may very clearly impact the rights and interests of Canadians and people in Canada. So it's really important to understand that there's at least two dimensions there in terms of the human rights concerns. And then the other piece is that there's a whole number of issues with, you know, is this actually going to improve Canada's um, security interests, uh, Canada's interests abroad, or is it more likely to undermine the security of the global information infrastructure? And it's certainly, from our vantage point, um, more likely to do, to do the latter. Um, so yeah, I think cyber warfare is a, a, um, can be a problematic term because the scope of powers uh, that the CSE is, is enabled to exercise under the proposed act are a lot broader than what you and I might think about when we talk about war. Uh, and certainly they include um, activities that are not just in the course of uh, defense or uh, security, but also international affairs more broadly. So there's a, a really broad range of uh, justifications that you know, could, could result in these types of activities. 
Yeah, this is like, it, it's a lot to get your head around. Uh, the denial of service attacks to knock a foreign website offline, okay. They can mess with the electricity grid. I mean, you talk about human rights, uh, it's a, of course a large concern, but this also is just like, makes me wonder about just our relationships with other countries and starting international conflicts because their ability to launch attacks doesn't include any judicial oversight under this proposed law, right? Right. So there's no oversight from the intelligence commissioner, which would be a new role created in Bill C-59. So there are some good things about Bill C-59, right? It creates a, a much more robust framework for oversight and review. And it creates this office of someone called the intelligence commissioner who has the ability to approve certain kinds of authorizations for CSE, for example, when it does foreign intelligence work. But the intelligence commissioner is not involved in these types of decisions um, for the cyber operations powers. And one of the sort of theoretical reasons that's been advanced here is this kind of warfare analogy, like that this kind of decision should be taken just by the the executive alone, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of National Defense should be able to exercise that power and that discretion um, without any kind of oversight. Now, there's, you know, first of all, I'm not necessarily convinced that that's the right legal argument, but from a policy perspective, I think it's extremely problematic as well, right? As you've said, if it's the Canadian forces conducting an operation abroad, that's always going to be inherently quite localized. But where you start engaging in activities in the digital sphere, where networks are extremely interconnected, where attribution is extremely difficult, you end up in very messy problems that certainly should require some degree of oversight, some degree of scrutiny from somebody with a degree of training and impartiality, with the ability to review the human rights and charter issues at stake. And we just don't see that happening here at all. And I would note in particular that there are issues around uh, freedom of expression. So whenever you take a website off the internet, there's a prima facie violation of the right to freedom of expression and the converse right to receive information. And so we're not necessarily saying that you need to have some sort of judicial process. And our report doesn't even really recommend that it's judicial um, approval. But some framework for oversight of these activities, if the government is going to go ahead with this proposal, is definitely essential. Okay. I mean, I know from, you know, talking to, I believe, Colin Freeze about this stuff in the past, that even saying like, well, don't worry about it because the Ministry of Defense has to okay this stuff. If I remember correctly, he did work where he was talking to former ministers of defense about the things they signed off on when it comes to CSE. And they didn't even comprehend themselves the powers that they had given CSE. And CSE basically has created its own legal framework that they won't really tell anybody how it works, that they claim allows them to do the things that they've already been doing. Lex, maybe that's what we should talk about because a lot of this is hypothetical about what they might do in the future. What have they done in the past? Like, what do we know that they've done, both in terms of things they've been allowed to do that might concern people and things that they were not allowed to do, but they did anyhow? Can we run through like a greatest hits of uh, the CSE back when they were called CSEC or, you know? Uh, <laughs> Well, there's a bit of a greatest hits in the report, which people can check out. Um, one of the problems with CSE is how little we know and how difficult it is to do exactly what you're talking about, to go back, look at past behavior, evaluate it for its legality, for its appropriateness or reasonableness or conformity with the charter. I think most of the past concerns and issues have come up in the privacy context and um, mostly as a result of documents we know through Edward Snowden. So the story that I think most Canadians are probably more familiar with is when it was revealed that CSE was 
conducting experiments with Canadian communications metadata by using identifiers that they were capturing at a Canadian airport to develop techniques for tracking people through space and time using information associated even with uh, Canadian universities and coffee shops and libraries. And, you know, the CSC maintains that it didn't do anything illegal in this context. Many scholars disagree with that. And it maintains that it doesn't direct its activities at Canadians, that it's a foreign-facing agency. And of course, it's not legally allowed to direct its activities at Canadians. But this whole concept of directing at is subject to exactly the kind of secret legal interpretation that you mentioned, which is a problem. And uh, I think we also need to point out in terms of greatest hits that the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association has a an ongoing major constitutional challenge with regard to the CSE's collection activities. And, uh, you know, certainly past behavior is an issue, but I think that there's a sort of meta issue on top of that, which is the secrecy with which the establishment operates that makes it very difficult for us to uh, evaluate constitutionality, evaluate reasonableness, proportionality of their activities over time. That's another issue that we like brought to the forefront in the conversation around Bell C-59. Let me try to kind of uh, interpret those things you just said, and you'll let me know if I got either of them wrong. This case of monitoring Canadians at not just an airport, but if I remember correctly, like you mentioned libraries and other places, that in practical effect was tracking people's whereabouts, right? Like they were tracking your phone as it would pop up on different Wi-Fi networks and they would know exactly when it did. And through that, they could actually collect all this stuff. And you could infer from that everybody's movements, right? Like, and this is from CSE who are not supposed to be spying on Canadians at all. Yeah. So there's that. And then the bulk collection of metadata, I think that's really relevant here because it shows just how important the vagueness of the language of these laws are because CSE is not supposed to be spying on our communications. But my understanding is that they have used some very, very creative interpretation of that to say, hey, we're not spying on the content of your communications online. We're just looking at the metadata of who you spoke to, when you spoke to them, from what device, you know, which actually can present a more robust and intrusive form of surveillance than if they were listening to our conversations and they have argued in as much as they've been forced to argue anything that that's totally okay and that doesn't count as spying on Canadians. And if we take that knowledge of how they interpret laws and look at this new law, the worries of all those hypothetical situations seems a lot more legitimate. Do I have all of that more or less right? Yeah, more or less. The issue around metadata is significant, and it's important that we constantly counter this narrative that metadata is somehow inherently less privacy invasive than communications data. So if I, uh, for example, could track, you know, the location of your cell phone over the course of the week, it would be trivially easy to know, uh, for example, whether or not you go to church, where you go to school, where your job is, whether or not you're cheating on a partner, uh, you know, whether you have particular beliefs or bad habits. Um, these types of things, particularly over time, can be deeply, deeply revealing of intimate information about a person's life. So I agree, yeah, this is a, it's a fundamental constitutional issue about the scope of our privacy rights. I think also that you're right to say, look, we have some information about um, the establishment's interpretation of what it means not to direct activities at Canadians in the context of foreign intelligence. And we should you know, also be concerned about what that means in the context of other types of activities. For example, if you wanted to interfere with WhatsApp and WhatsApp servers are not in Canada, it would be possible to use the cyber operations powers to interfere with that communications technology as long as you weren't doing it to to direct that activity at a Canadian person. Um, uh -huh. but, but of course, 
you know, lots of Canadians use WhatsApp, right? And rely on it for their privacy and for their freedom of expression, which are protected rights under our charter and things that, you know, the government ought to be considering when engaging in these types of activities. You know, we need more robust and independent frameworks for legal review of this law, which is extremely complex. It can't be left to the sort of internal devices, which is, you know, one reason why the new review agency that C-59 establishes is a really good thing, because there will be some at least after the fact review of the CSE's activities. But we're saying, look, you're creating this office of an intelligence commissioner who's supposed to be a retired judge. You know, it would be great if we could give that office a little bit more teeth, uh, strengthen the role, give that person more power so that they can exercise oversight before the establishment engages in potentially problematic activities. Yeah, I mean, you're bringing up oversight here a few times and you're giving some applause to this for strengthening it. But I mean, I think that we need to then talk about why that has been necessary because there has been a CSEC uh, commissioner whose job is just that, to report to the ministry, I think, every year to say, okay, CSEC has given me after the fact access to their activities and based on what they've shared with me, I can attest that they were following the rules. And in fact, there was a year where the CSEC commissioner said, yeah, there's these huge gaps in what they've sent me, and I can't confirm that they're following the rules. And it's the first thing that they point to when people say, how do we know what you're doing is right? They say, well, we've got this commissioner, but I believe it was one person who was only dealing with the information that CSEC was giving them. And even within that framework, couldn't say, okay, check mark, this is all cool. Yeah. And I wish I could tell you that the new intelligence commissioner role would fix all those problems, but it won't, not as currently drafted at least. So this, the office of the intelligence commissioner, it's it's supposed to be a retired part-time job for a judge. Uh, and It's a part-time job. It's a, okay. Yes, it's a part-time job for a retired judge. But presumably this person will also have an office with staff and resources and so on. But, you know, while the role has been described as quasi-judicial, which is important in terms of authorizing breaches of privacy rights, which is what CSE does, uh, the closer you look, I think the less judge-like this role becomes. So authorizations are still done in secret. You know, even in the U.S. FISA court context, decisions are sometimes made public, at least in a redacted form. Um, Authorizations in the context of the CSE are going to be entirely secret to the public. They will still keep applying to classes of activities, which, you know, I think is something that we don't talk about enough, that uh, pretty much everything the CSE does is subject to, I think it's three or four authorizations right now. So that covers the scope of everything activity that the CSE currently engages in. So when you're authorizing something on a class by class basis, you're not looking at a specific activity, a specific context, you're authorizing a whole host of activities. So that problem remains. The commissioner only issues reasons, which are again in secret when it rejects an authorization, not when it approves one. Uh, And there's no framework for appealing the commissioner's decision to approve an authorization anyway. It's not even clear who would have standing to do that. Um, You know, and there's no no real framework um, for, for adversarial input, for interveners, for some kind of system uh, for, an, you know, an advocate to push back against potential overreach. So, you know, we are reassured that there is a process in the law that would allow the commissioner to appoint experts to help her him do their work. You know, first of all, that role isn't mandatory, and it's not really clear how that will play out in practice. So, you know, we talk about it being a sort of quasi-judicial role, but the more you look at it, the less 
clear to me, it seems, that there's really anything judge-like about this position. And that's unfortunate because really there's an opportunity to get this right, to strengthen this role, to create a more robust framework for oversight, and to have a position that could really rein in some of the more potentially problematic activities that, that CSE might otherwise be engaged in. Well, Lex, none of this sounds very good at all. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's very scary. Like, I thought it was moving in the other direction because, you know, for years, when I covered this stuff, like on a weekly basis, the question was how to get the public to care about this stuff. And then C-51, all of a sudden, there was like this massive national outcry uh, against Bill C-51 and the overreach and the effect on on civil liberties with that anti-terrorism bill back when it was Harper's bill. And like there was like this sense of uh, victory-ish when, when uh, Trudeau wouldn't say I'm turfing C-51, but he said, yeah, I hear you. I hear these protests. There's legitimacy to them. We're going to curb this. And now we've got this new legislation from the Trudeau government that like it seems to make things much, much worse. Although there's some strengthening of oversight, it's strengthening of oversight, which itself, it seems from what you're saying is debatable of a much wider range of things they can now do. So it seems like this is moving in exactly the wrong direction, but I'm not seeing the same protests that we did under C-51. Yeah, I think it's hard. Um, there's a couple reasons for that, right? C-59 is, the bill is 150 pages long, first of all. Uh, it touches everything from terrorism offenses and ceases disruption and information disclosure, you know, to the terrorist entities list. It does fix some old problems. Uh, it creates some significant new ones and it makes some cosmetic fixes to other things like the no-fly list, which is still very, very broken. But In terms of the CSE Act, what I think is interesting is most of these other changes in Bill C-59 were foreshadowed in some way. So we need to anticipate them either as a result of the public conversation that came out of Bill C-51 and the rightful outcry um, in relation to some of the unconstitutional aspects of that bill, or we need to expect them as a result of the government's 2016 national security consultation. But the changes to the communication security establishment came out of left field for a lot of people who are working in this area, where there was a huge overhaul of the legal framework that applies to the establishment. In a lot of ways, it is good news that there's going to be, in theory, a new CSE Act, because right now, most Canadians don't know this, but despite the fact that the CSE is over 70 years old, the first time it ever existed was referenced in a public law was, was 2001. And it still only occupies this tiny corner of the National Defense Act. There's very little in our public law about the CSE. So it is good from a transparency and a rule of law perspective that it's going to have its own governing statute with a clear framework for authorizing its activities. The problem is, uh, (laughs) you know, some of the pieces in that bill are are still an issue. But ironically, while C-51 didn't mention CSE, Many of the concerns with that bill was that it would jeopardize Canadians' privacy, that it would give our national security agencies, you know, in that case, CSIS, really extraordinary powers to disrupt and interfere with people's lives. And unfortunately, we're seeing some of the same themes emerging here, but because the bill is so tremendously complicated and because people are sort of trying to deal with it on multiple fronts, it's very difficult to tackle the issue in a sort of strategic way from an 
advocacy perspective. But also it takes a lot of work to explain these issues to the public when only 3% of Canadians know what the CSE is through no fault of their own, right? Yeah, I mean, spies like to do their work in secret and CSEC, now CSE, has been remarkably successful in operating in the shadows. And it's hard to find the thread that we can pick up on that's going to connect this to the public. But that's exactly what's needed right now. And government has indicated like, hey, this is just a bill. If there's concerns, we can change it. The ball's sort of in the public's court to see if people are going to swallow this or not. It's a sort of a terrifying thought to think that just because of the sheer complexity and secrecy of the bill itself, this might pass through without that vigorous public debate, without that kind of outcry we saw for C-51. I think that, um, how am I going to tackle this question here? You know, the government- Pick one the- thing that people are going to, what's going to get people going about this? Because it's, it's a lot to take in. Yeah, you know, well, here's what it is. The government needs to go back to the drawing board on the CSE Act. At minimum, it needs to go back to the drawing board on the new cyber operations powers and on the exceptions to targeting Canadians and people in Canada. From our perspective, that's the minimum. In our report, we outline over 50 recommendations. So the government has said that this is not going to be a repeat of Bill C-51, where there was very limited consultation, there was very minimal room for amendment, and many people felt that the process was a bit of a steamrolling, right? So they've said, look, We're going to listen to the public. We want to hear folks' concerns. We want to consult with academia. And we're taking that to heart, right? We wrote a 70-odd page report (laughs) hoping that people in government would take seriously the the significant human rights and global security concerns at play here. SECU, which is the parliamentary committee that's tasked with reviewing this legislation in the House, they're reviewing this legislation now. Hopefully, they're concerned about these problems. But, you know, for the public to understand, I mean, I think it's going to take a lot of work on the part of civil society to um, keep having these conversations publicly and to do the legwork in educating not just uh, not just the public, frankly, but also journalists on these issues um, and developing that literacy. It's difficult because it's complicated from a number of perspectives, right? Like my background is in law and this is the CSE Act is a tremendously complex statute, but it's also dealing with tremendously complex technical concepts. And one of the challenges in Canada is that while we have a great number of experts on national security law, who we're very fortunate to have, not all of those people have the technical expertise to understand the full scope of the types of things that CSE might be engaged in. So hopefully our work at the lab can help to fill that gap a little. Yeah. If there's anything more difficult than explaining technological matters to the public and getting them excited about that, it would be explaining policy and legal matters to the public. And you got both jobs. Right. In terms of what it's going to take, I mean, maybe you're right. I have a bit more of a pessimistic view. I think that it might take more than that. I, I feel like something bad has to happen. Does that sound ominous? I'm not saying I'm going to do anything. That. I'm saying that, that, that they actually have to abuse these powers in a way that people can see just how dangerous they are. But again, we're in uh, speculative territory, Lex. So Yeah, I guess one thing I just want to sort of throw in there is it's important to avoid being too speculative or too conspiratorial, right? Like we are tremendously concerned about the vast scope of potential activities that the CSE could engage in as a result of this legislation, but that doesn't mean they're doing it right now. That being said, the last time the law surrounding CSE changed was 2001, and a lot changes in 17 years, technologically, politically, economically, and also within the organizational culture of governments and institutions. And I mean, we see this in Spades 
when we look at our neighbors to the south, right? Governments change, ideas change, and we need to build laws in a manner that is forward-looking and that understands that institutions, democratic institutions, are sometimes terribly fragile. And I don't necessarily agree with your diagnosis that something bad needs to happen. I think that, you know, what we need is um, a bit of humility looking forward to ask whether, you know, trust us is a good enough governing principle for some of the most powerful institutions that exist in this world. And my perspective is that trust us can't be good enough, that we need to have thoughtful and constrained and cautious and responsible legal frameworks in place um, to restrain the possibility for abuse here. And unfortunately, that's not what we've seen in some aspects of this bill. See what I'm saying? I do. And and, and I hope you're right. I just feel like... I'm never you know, the optimist in, this, in these conversations. I, you know, I, I feel like in the States, people needed Snowden to tell them this has already happened to you uh, writ large. And then they sort of got the picture and there was some pushback. And you'd think that we could take that lesson just that it happened to them and know that it could happen to us. But I feel like even though we do know that it kind of happened to us, Canada's a different country. We think of our rights very differently and it wasn't proven on the same scale as what happened then and not quite as dramatically. And I, I kind of feel like we're still waiting for our Snowden moment. But Lex, you've done a, a great job of helping me wade through all this. And thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jesse. Take care. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. Either way, if you email me about it, I will read that email. If you send your email to jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. We have a Facebook page. The reason why that might be interesting to you is that if you press like on our Facebook page, our news stories will show up in your Facebook news feed. Otherwise, you could just go to our website, canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode was produced by Ali Graham. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 